For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. In Kabul on Sunday night, hundreds of people rushed across an airport tarmac to board planes out of Afghanistan. There were no lines, there was no one directing foot traffic. People held hands as they snaked through the crowd, shouting over the din, clutching children. Others climbed awkwardly into the back of a U.S. cargo jet. By daybreak, young men could be seen sprinting down a runway alongside a military plane as it prepared for liftoff. Some of the men had clasped their bodies onto the sides of the jet, desperate to flee their country as the Taliban asserted control. It's a tragic and largely preventable situation. Fred Kaplan writes the War Stories column for Slate. We spoke Monday morning, a day after Afghanistan's President Ashraf Ghani fled the country and Kabul fell to the Taliban. Yeah, no, this is, uh, you know, both substantively and politically, this is exactly the sort of image that, that Biden never dreamed that he would have to confront, right? President, thank you very much. Your own intelligence community has assessed that the Afghan government will likely collapse. That is not true. This was Biden answering questions from reporters just a month ago. It was July 8th. The U.S. had just turned off the lights at its main airbase north of Kabul. The Taliban was quickly taking over rural areas. Afghan forces were feeling abandoned. The Afghan government and leadership has to come together. They clearly have the capacity to sustain the government in place. They have the forces. They have the equipment. The question is, will they do it? And I want to make clear what I made clear to Ghani, that we are not going to walk away and not sustain their ability to maintain that force. Looking back, that comment from the president was either a lie or so blindly optimistic as to be foreign policy malpractice. The U.S. has walked away. Afghans have not maintained their security forces. The Taliban took over in less than four months. The Taliban captured the capital without any resistance from the Afghan army. Militants took hold of the country's presidential palace, and the group claimed the Islamic Emirate of Afghanistan was back. The war was over. How did Afghanistan fall so quickly? And so completely, Fred says, when the Afghan forces saw that the Americans weren't going to be there to prop them up, they simply did what they had to do. Once they saw which way the wind was blowing and heard reports of this city falling and that city falling, why, why fight? You know, lay down your arms or cut a deal, do whatever after you do, and leave. You know, your, your cause is hopeless at that point. Hope is also in short supply for the tens of thousands of Afghans who worked for U.S. and NATO forces and were promised visas and a life abroad. Now many of them are stuck behind Taliban roadblocks. 
Officials at the U.S. Embassy were spending their remaining hours in Kabul burning documents that would identify allied Afghans. But Fred says the Taliban can still find them. They could also go door to door and ask people who in your neighborhood was helping the Americans. And people will cooperate. They're not going to be sent to re-education camps or, or rehabilitation centers. They're, they're going to be imprisoned or killed. I mean, I, I'm kind of appalled. On the show today, the hasty, chaotic exit of the U.S. military from Afghanistan after 20 years. I'm Mary Wilson, filling in for Mary Harris. This is What Next. Keep listening. This episode is brought to you by SAP. First, the bad news. SAP Business AI will not help you generate cubist versions of your family's holiday photos. But it will help you understand which supplier is best to help you roll out your plant-based packaging in Southeast Asia. Or identify the training your junior project manager needs to rise up the ranks. Or automate repetitive tasks while you focus on big innovations. So you can be ready for the next opportunity. Revolutionary technology, real-world results. That's SAP Business AI. So let's talk about how we got here. We could go back. We could go back two decades to talk about how we got here. But let's go back to February 2020, when a deal was struck between the U.S. and the Taliban for U.S. withdrawal. Uh, it was brokered by the Trump administration. We just signed an agreement that puts us in a position to get it done, bring us down to in the vicinity of 8,000 troops. Yeah. No. Trump is now saying, "Oh, if I were still president." Uh, there would have been conditions attached to this withdrawal. Well, no, no. The deal that he went with, uh, it had two deals. One was that uh, the Taliban would not cooperate with al-Qaeda or any other groups that threatened the United States. And so far, nothing that they've done has involved al-Qaeda or, or anything like it. And two, that they would engage in intra-Afghan negotiations. Well, you know, what does that mean? There was no time stated to this. It wasn't like you will do this before, you know, taking over Kabul. Uh, so, yeah, there will probably be very, very, very brief intra-Afghan negotiations. So, no, they have not uh, broken the terms of anything in that February 2020 agreement. Uh, there was nothing in there which said you will not advance upon Kabul or or even any other city uh, until we're out of there or for another year or any, there there was no such term so uh, they are still in compliance with the February 2020 agreement. So the deal is inked in February 2020. One year later, Biden is in office. Could the Biden administration have revisited that deal? Well, see that that's an interesting question because. because under the Trump deal, we were supposed to be completely out by May 1st. And Biden said, well, look, the logistics, we're not going to be able to get out of there. So let's say September 11th. Taliban had no problems with that. But one thing Biden said is possibly true. He said, look, if I didn't pull out all the troops in accordance with this deal, then the Taliban would start fighting us again. And, you know, Mary, people don't generally recognize this. Not a single American has, has been killed in Afghanistan uh, since that February 2020 deal was signed. 
zero. It is possible that if Biden had come along and said, well, screw this deal, I no, I'm not part of it. We're, we're keeping 2,000 troops in Afghanistan for the duration. It's possible that the Taliban would have started fighting again. It's also possible they, they might not have. The, the point is the proposition was never tested. You know, I know that Tony Blinken, the Secretary of State, uh, said that, oh, well, if we'd kept some troops in, uh, we'd now have to be moving in tens of thousands of troops to counter the Taliban onslaught. You know, I think that might be overstating it as well. Uh, we'll never know. We'll never know. And in any event, you know, the, the fact is, for a variety of reasons, some legitimate, some less so, Biden was looking to get out of Afghanistan as soon as possible. And the the poorly hastily negotiated Trump uh, accord gave him the excuse for not delaying. So in April of this year, Biden announced that he would withdraw the remaining U.S. troops from Afghanistan by September 11th. We cannot continue the cycle of extending or expanding our military presence in Afghanistan, hoping to create ideal conditions for the withdrawal and expecting a different result. There were about 3,500 U.S. troops remaining. Contractors also will be coming with them. You know, that's all part of that announcement. The drawdown begins in earnest in May, and so did the advance of the Taliban. They started in the rural areas. And then by July, people are starting to sound the alarm that, holy heck, this is going a lot faster than anybody anticipated. The Afghan forces are falling like dominoes. So the question became, why are they so weak? Well, you know, what was propping up the Afghan army wasn't just American troops. As American troops hadn't really been fighting, you know, doing com- direct combat for quite a while. What was propping them up were things like close air support, logistics, intelligence, helicopters, which were able to transport Afghan troops from one very isolated part of the country to another. Uh, the only other way to get there would be to climb over mountains. That's what was doing it. And, and see, one problem here is that, and we have a tendency to do this, the U.S. military built up the Afghan army in the image of the U.S. military uh, to make them dependent on all of these things, logistics and close air support, intelligence and so forth, medevac, surgeons. Uh, it enhanced their power greatly. But it also made them forever dependent on them. And once that network of combat support and supplies and maintenance and so forth, once that left, that was it. Even an American combat unit would not have had much ability to keep fighting without that network of support behind it. So that's why they collapsed quickly. That plus the fact that, uh, you know, they, were, they, they hated the Taliban, but they, they were never... It never had much fealty toward the Afghan government, which remained corrupt, which didn't feed, give them enough food or water, much less guns and ammunition. Uh, so they really, they said, this thing is going down the tubes and I don't want to die here for something I don't particularly believe in. So that's why it fell. And, and listen, military experts and retired officers that I was talking with all along thought that once, once we pulled out like this, it was just a matter of time and, and not much time. Yeah. You talk about 
Afghan security forces not having much fealty toward the Afghan government. And I'm, I'm thinking of the stories I've read over the past week of Afghan forces waiting for rations, waiting and waiting for rations and getting like a box. I think it might have been a Washington Post report. They got a box of slimy potatoes and they said, we can't hold this line with French fries. You know, you've you've got reports of Afghan security force equipment winding up in the hands of the Taliban. They're using uh, vehicles that still have Afghan security force insignia, Afghan army insignia on it. That had been going on for quite a long time. Is that right? I mean, for years, maybe a decade. I mean, the, the idea of the Taliban going up to army units and giving them money or food or whatever for their weapons or their jeeps or, or whatever. They're, you know, this, this you know, warlords who had declared fealty to the government doing back deals with the Taliban. You know, it, it's a little dangerous to focus so much on what's happened in the last couple of weeks. Uh, this has been a pretty hopeless endeavor uh, for many, many years, uh, arguably from the very beginning. Uh, you know, the very fact that you were going after, we were fighting an insurgency that when they were coming under attack could just take safe haven in neighboring Pakistan, that alone really, you know, make, makes the odds almost almost absurdly small that we were ever going to succeed here. I think about the Afghan forces, and I'm. it reminds me of Esperanto, which was this, like, uh, language that was invented out of whole cloth, basically, to become the new lingua franca of the world. And of course, it, it has never caught on. Or, or, the met- um, or the metric system in the United States. <laughs> Yeah, it's just these systems that are like here. This will this will be this will be good. There's no history. There's no unifying cause. There's no unifying culture. But here, this will work. Whereas the Taliban is fighting for a recognizable culture. That's right. In some ways, it's it's even more delusional because you know there was a book written in the 1960s by a former French colonial soldier named David Galula called Counterinsurgency Warfare, and this was the Bible for General Petraeus and other people who were pushing for a counterinsurgency, you know, nation-building kind of thing. But there was one chapter in that book which talked about favorable and unfavorable conditions for counterinsurgency. And if you look at the things that he listed for what makes for an unfavorable conditions for a counterinsurgency, it included things like landlocked country, rural, illiterate, uh, sanctuary in a neighboring country, a few other things. It's it's like a description of Afghanistan. Mm. So, I mean, if they, if they had read the Bible uh, less dogmatically, they would have seen that this thing was, was a no-go from the very beginning. And so it was a mistake. It, now, listen, they had the, the diagnostics might have been correct, which is, look, if, if Afghan society and politics don't change, Somebody else like the Taliban and Al-Qaeda will, will, will come back into power again, preying on the, the appetite, you know, the desires of the people in the face of an inadequate government. And so, therefore, we have to instill reforms. Okay, there might be something to that diagnostically. But Afghanistan was a terrible place for doing it. We don't know how to do this outside of the image of ourselves. You know, we had almost nobody over there who spoke the language, much less understood the history of the culture or anything. It was, it's just, I mean, textbook from A to Z on, on how to do something like this incorrectly. More with Fred Kaplan 
after the break. Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. In the latest season of Blind Spot from WNYC Studios and the History Channel, join host Kai Wright as he travels back to a pivotal moment in the history of this country. Decades before COVID-19, a virus tore through some of our most vulnerable communities while the wider world looked away. Throughout the season, you'll meet people who demanded that they and their illness be seen. Mothers, children, doctors, nurses, nuns, and sex workers, all leading to a woman who literally helped change the definition of AIDS. Blind Spot, the plague in the shadows. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. So there are two competing views of this withdrawal. There's the case that what we're seeing proves that the U.S. never should have left. And then there's the side that thinks that what we're seeing proves we never should have been there uh, in the first place, never had an achievable mission. I'd like you to try to explain both viewpoints, put a little meat on those bones, and and then I'd like you to tell me where you land. Well, uh, here's the thing. Obama, you know, he put a lot more troops, 30,000 more than it was already there when he was president, and and embarked on a kind of a nation-building counterinsurgency strategy. After about 18 months, he realized that this wasn't working, and he withdrew all the surge forces. And then he started cutting back on the mission and the numbers. But as he left office, he kept in 5,800 troops, and their missions were training the Afghan army, and counterterrorism along the Pakistani border. I, I think a case could be made. Look, you know, the United States has troops, you know, all over the world. I, I don't even, uh, more than 100 countries. I don't know how many countries off the top of my head, uh, doing one thing or another. In Afghanistan, the cost of keeping troops in Afghanistan had diminished to a very small amount. Uh, a case could be made that we could have stayed there really with, with inconspicuously for quite a long time. So it could have been done. Now, again, the thing that we don't know is this crazy deal that Trump signed with the Taliban saying, we'll be out by May the 1st, and the Taliban threatening, if you're not, uh, we're going to come after you again. Uh, I certainly would, would not have been for staying there if it, if it would meant renewing direct con- combat with, I, I don't think it's worth very many of any American deaths. But, uh, but again, it, you're, you're asking the fundamental question. And the fundamental question is, is, is complicated by uh, the restraints that Trump put on Biden's actions and then the, the really the, the sheer incompetence of the way that we with, withdrawn, the complete waste of four months in which uh, Biden and the Pentagon could have done a lot 
to ward off the savagery that's about to take place now. Yeah. You're reminding me of this interview segment that's been making the rounds the past few days. It's an interview from last year, from February 2020, and then-candidate Biden was on Face the Nation, and Margaret Brennan asked Biden... Don't you bear some responsibility for the outcome if the Taliban ends up back in control and women end up losing the rights? No, I don't. Look, are you telling me that we should go into China because go to war with China because what they're doing to the Uyghurs, a million Uyghurs? In the, out in the West in concentration camps? Is that what you're saying to me? It was your quote, sir. I was asking you. No, I know. I gave you my, I gave the answer. You, do I bear responsibility? Zero responsibility. And I can, I can hear as you, as you talk, it's, it's, it's pretty obvious where you think he gets that right and where you think he gets that wrong. Well, see, back in the, in 2009, uh, you know, Obama, President Obama held 10 National Security Council meetings to discuss what do we do in Afghanistan. And Biden was almost alone in opposing the idea of sending in another 30,000, 40,000 troops and adopting a nation-building strategy. He said, look, it's just not going to work. I've been to Afghanistan. I remember Vietnam. It's not going to work. And he proposed sending another 10,000 troops to, to improve the, the training and equipping of the Afghan army, helping them fight more. And uh, look, he turned out to be right. That turned out to have been, would have been the right move. And so Biden doesn't forget those debates. And he also saw, again, correctly, that the military was boxing Obama in. And so he didn't want to be boxed in. And he also wanted to get on with other things domestic and foreign, and so he decided, let's just get the hell out of there. Again, I understand what he was doing. I understand his reasoning. Uh, he's absolutely right when he says, look, if we stay another 10 years and then leave, it, it's going to be the same. The results are going to be the same. I'm just saying he could have used those four months to get out in a, in a much more responsible, less deadly way. What the Taliban takeover looks like to me is local Afghans knowing how to survive invasions. Oh, yeah, absolutely. You figure out which big dog is leaving and you make nice with the next alpha dog in line. And Afghans have been doing that for decades. Listen, right? there were, you know, there were reports, there are stories about this. Even now, at this late date, a lot of Afghan farmers thought that the U.S. people who were there were Russians. Wow. I mean, they, they never quite processed that the Russians had left a long time ago. But, you know, to them, there's no difference. Americans, Russians, they're all outsiders. And, of course, the Soviets left in 89, right? So, yeah, it's been, I mean, maybe even before some of these, when these farmers were a little kid. No, they, it was, but, you know, it, it's almost, it almost doesn't matter. From their perspective, there is no difference. Both both groups of outsiders came in and said, we're going to make a better future for you. You know, the Soviets did. We're going to, we're going to clue you in on the glories of, of international socialism. Uh, we came in and said, we're going to clue you into the glories of freedom, democracy, and modernity. It was all nonsense to them. It had nothing to do with anything about their everyday lives. 
Fred Kaplan, thank you so much. Sure, my pleasure. Fred Kaplan writes the War Stories column for Slate. His latest book is The Bomb, Presidents, Generals, and the Secret History of Nuclear War. On Monday afternoon, President Biden said he stood by his decision to withdraw U.S. troops from Afghanistan and added that the U.S. would move quickly in coming days to help transport Afghans with visas out of the country. The truth is, this did unfold more quickly than we had anticipated. So what's happened? Afghanistan political leaders gave up and fled the country. The Afghan military collapsed sometime without trying to fight. If anything, the developments of the past week reinforced that ending U.S. military involvement in Afghanistan now was the right decision. American troops cannot and should not be fighting in a war and dying in a war that Afghan forces are not willing to fight for themselves. That's the show. What Next is produced by the amazing Davis Land, Danielle Hewitt, Carmel Del Shad, and Elena Schwartz. Allison Benedict is the executive editor of Slate. Leisha Montgomery is executive producer of Slate Podcasts. I am Mary Wilson, filling in today for Mary Harris. We'll catch you back here tomorrow. Thanks for listening. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early, so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, click Grainger.com, or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.